Good morning. Great to see all of you and those of you who are watching uh, live or on demand online. Welcome. Uh, we are in a new series that's going to last through our Christmas services, and it's an Advent series. Uh, it's our Advent 2021, and we're taking the four candles, the four themes that go with the four candles of Advent, and so we're looking at hope today, and specifically we're looking at how to grow in a sense of hope, especially uh, when hope is difficult to come by. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about that, and then we're going to talk about peace and love, and for our Christmas services, we're going to be talking about joy. So because understanding the Bible and your purpose in life doesn't have to be a mystery, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Jeremiah 33. So if you don't have a Bible with you, those of you at home, you can go grab your Bible right now. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in the seat rack in front of you, and it's page 792, 792, 792 in those Bibles. Jeremiah is a big, big prophetic book in the Old Testament, just to the right, uh, a few books to the right of the middle, all right, so that can help you as well. So we're going to pray as we always do for God the Holy Spirit to illuminate his word to us, and this prayer is based on Micah chapter 7, so please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, there is no one like you. Your word shows us your faithfulness to your people from the very beginning. Just as you promised long ago, you have saved us. You have made a way for us to know you by sending us your son. Our only hope is in you. We can be confident in who you are. Open our eyes to the truth in your word. Give us understanding. Open our hearts to the work of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, watch a couple of our uh, five ochres read our passage for today. Jeremiah 33, 14 through 15. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. All right, stay in Jeremiah because we're going to be uh, looking at that some more and going back into chapter 32 as well. Um, but hopefully you heard that connection in Jeremiah, the promise of this sprout from the, a, a branch from David's line that's going to be coming and, and then that prophecy being fulfilled in Jesus. So author Hannah Anderson, she recently wrote an article uh, describing a scene in her own home, talking to her daughter, that unfortunately a lot of you are going to be able to identify with. She says, the first thing to go was the trip my daughter had earned to Boston. Then it was her summer internship at the local theater company, followed by a business course she wanted to take for college credit. Eighteen months of disappointments finally spilled over last week 
as my 17-year-old and I were discussing a potential graduation trip. Mom, she interrupted, her voice quavering ever so slightly, I can't talk about this. I can't handle getting excited. It hurts too much when things get canceled. My daughter's comments reminded me of the pandemic's collateral damage, the ability to dream, plan, and hope for the future. Um, I like that they, it captures really um, our time right now. The pandemic's collateral damage for so many is a loss of hope. So uh, just a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago, two or three months ago, we were in a series working our way through Romans 5 through 8. And in that series, we talked about hope. We, we, that's really the theme, especially at the beginning and the end, and really everything in between relates to it in, in a lot of different ways. And so we talked about hope in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, as being very different than the where similar but different than the way we use the word hope in English. It, it's a confident anticipation of something. It's when you know something is going to happen in your heart. You know something is going to happen. We don't usually say that in English with the word hope. Uh, it also has, an, like English, an I can't wait uh, type of quality to it. Um, but it's not about optimism. And so if you're hearing hope and you're thinking optimism, like everything is going to work out, this is going to happen, that's not what hope is in Scripture. It's related to that kind of thinking, but only related in the sense that there is this belief that Christians have from the Scripture that everything is going to work out. The, the difference is that the horizon is much farther out. And so the horizon that we're looking at is way, way out there. It's a plan that God has for His glory, and that means for our good, those who are in Christ. It's, it's for our good as well. It's for our, even our glory and sharing in His glory. What you may not realize is that hope isn't peripheral to faith. It's at the core of faith. It's not like an option. Okay, you're a Christian. Well, here are some of your options. You can experience some of these kinds of things. You can have some hope. It's not, it's not an option. It's illustrated really well in a story told about Father Richard John Newhouse. And so uh, Richard John Newhouse started a journal called First Things. Some of you have probably read the First Things journal. He was a, a critic of culture. Uh, he died, I don't know, 15 years ago or something like that. But he was a critic of culture and a keen observer of culture. And he was speaking at a conference. The person that was hosting him picked him up at the airport. And on their way to the, to the conference, the guy, knowing the kinds of things that Richard John Newhouse would talk about, is he, he started telling them all the things that are wrong with our culture. You know, he's kind of like expecting Newhouse to just affirm, yeah, our culture is messed up. But instead, he listened, and he waited, and then when the guy was kind of done, he said this. He said, the times may be bad, but they're the only times we're given. Remember, hope is still a Christian virtue, and despair is a mortal sin. Now, he's a Roman Catholic priest, mortal sin in Catholicism means really, really serious sin. Um, but it's true. Christian hope is a virtue. Where do you get the idea that it's a virtue? Where do we get that idea? Well, one of the places is in what's oftentimes called the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, um, where it says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, speaking now in our life, 
But the greatest of these is, is love. So hope in this passage is an outworking of love. Love protects, it trusts, it hopes, it perseveres. It's an outworking of love. Uh, it's one of three main virtues that the Apostle Paul talks about. He says, right now we've got these, these three, faith, hope, and love. Now, we know faith is really important. We know love is really important. Hope is in that list of these three major virtues. Hope is, is, um, is right at the center of our faith, at the core of our faith. So I don't think we get a pass on being hopeful. We don't get a pass on being hopeful because of a pandemic. We don't get a pass on being hopeful because we've been watching the news. We don't get a pass on being hopeful because we're suffering or even because we're experiencing grief. And we don't want to pass. I mean, really, we, ultimately, we don't want to pass. We want and need hope in all circumstances. And we can have hope in all circumstances. So how do we, how do we cultivate hope in our lives? How do we cultivate hope in this season? Um, so uh, we're going to see today that the Bible, in the Bible, hope requires waiting. All right, so part of the way that we cultivate hope is we wait, but we don't wait for hope. We practice hopeful waiting. So this is the big idea for today, and we're going to see it in the passages that we're looking at. Hope requires waiting, but we don't wait for hope. We practice hopeful waiting. All right, so two points. Don't often have a two-point sermon. We have two points today. How do we cultivate hope? First of all, we have to learn to wait. We have to learn to wait. Hope requires waiting. Now, let me state the obvious. Hope is future-oriented, right? Uh, so you're hoping about something that's going to happen in the future. Once you reach that future, you don't need it anymore. That's why faith, hope, and love remain now, but the greatest is love. And then later in 1 Corinthians 13, it says the only one that's going to last when completion comes, when Christ comes, the only one that's going to last is love. Faith is also, you know, there's, there, you don't need faith when you are experiencing the very thing that you have faith in, just completely experiencing it with, with, with absolute certainty. You have it. And so hope is future-oriented. You don't say, I hope I can get a vacation where I can just soak in the sun on a beach in Cancun while you're on the beach soaking in the sun on vacation, right? You don't, you don't say that. So we have to understand it's baked into the very idea that hope requires waiting. I know that's obvious. Um, but it's the waiting part that trips us up. It's the waiting part that trips us up all the time. And so we're going to plant ourselves on waiting for a little while. If we're going to talk about hope, we've got to talk about waiting. So God speaks to Jeremiah, and he makes a promise to him that we just heard. And that promise requires waiting. So look at chapter 33, beginning verse 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. A day is coming. It's in the future, but you're going to have to wait. When Jeremiah hears this promise from God, the Babylonian armies have surrounded Jerusalem. Not only have the Babylonian armies surrounded Jerusalem, he has received a prior prophecy from God that says the Babylonians will win Tell the king, don't resist. The Babylonians will win. So he goes to the king and he tells the king, 
don't resist, the Babylonians will win. God, that's God's word to you. And the king doesn't like it. And so the king imprisons Jeremiah for not telling him what he wanted to hear. And so um, what we have here is uh, this promise of something that's coming out in the future. So a day of fulfillment is coming. But Jeremiah knows that dark and dreadful days are coming first. The Babylonians are going to conquer Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jeremiah, and the people of God are going to have to wait for the fulfillment of this promise. So hope is part of the meaning, waiting is part of the meaning of hope. Let's watch the Bible project on hope. So let's say you want to describe the feeling of anticipating a future that's better than the present. You might be giddy or excited or maybe unsure, but most of us know that experience. We call it hope. It's a state of anticipation, and it's crucial for healthy human existence. And it's a really important concept in the Bible. In fact, there are many words for hope in the ancient languages of the Bible, and they're all fascinating. In the Old Testament, there are two main Hebrew words translated as hope. The first is yachal, which means simply to wait for. Like in the story of Noah and the ark, as the floodwaters recede, Noah had to yachal for weeks. The other Hebrew word is kava, which also means to wait. It's related to the Hebrew word kav, which means cord. When you pull a kav tight, you produce a state of tension until there's release. That's kava, the feeling of tension and expectation while you wait for something to happen. The prophet Isaiah depicts God as a farmer who plants vines and kavas for good grapes. Or the prophet Micah talks about farmers who both kava and yachal for morning dew to give moisture to the land. So in biblical Hebrew, hope is about waiting or expectation. But waiting for what? In the period of Israel's prophets, as the nation was sinking into self-destruction, Isaiah said, at this moment, the Lord's hiding his face from Israel, so I will kavah for him. The only hope Isaiah had in those dark days was the hope for God himself. You find the same notion of hope all over the book of Psalms, where these words appear over 40 times. In almost every case, what people are waiting for is God. Like in Psalm 130, the poet cries out from a pit of despair, I kavah for the Lord, let Israel yachal for the Lord, because he's loyal and will redeem Israel from its sins. Biblical hope is based on a person, which makes it different from optimism. Optimism is about choosing to see in any situation how circumstances could work out for the best. But biblical hope is not focused on circumstances. In fact, hopeful people in the Bible often recognize there's no evidence things will get better but you choose hope anyway. Like the prophet Hosea, he lived in a dark time when Israel was being oppressed by foreign empires, and he chose hope when he said God could turn this valley of trouble into a door of hope, like the day when Israel came up from the land of Egypt. God had surprised his people with redemption back in the days of the Exodus, and he could do so again. So it's God's past faithfulness that motivates hope for the future. You look forward by looking backward, trusting in nothing other than God's character. It's like the poet of Psalm 39 who says, And now, O Lord, what else can I kavah for? You are my yachal. In the New Testament, the earliest followers of Jesus cultivated the similar habit of hope. They believed that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was God's surprising response to our slavery to evil and death. The empty tomb opened up a new door of hope, and they used the Greek word elpis to describe this anticipation. The apostle Peter said that Jesus' resurrection opened up a living hope, that people can be reborn, to become new and different kinds of humans. 
More than once, the Apostle Paul says the good news about Jesus announces the elpis of glory. In both cases, this elpis is based on a person, the risen Jesus who has overcome death. And this hope wasn't just for humans. The Apostles believed that what happened to Jesus in the resurrection was a foretaste of what God had planned for the whole universe. In Paul's words, it's a hope that creation itself will be liberated from slavery to corruption into freedom when God's children are glorified. So Christian hope is bold, waiting for humanity and the whole universe to be rescued from evil and death. And some would say it's crazy, and maybe it is, but biblical hope isn't optimism based on the odds. It's a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward. And so we wait. That's what the biblical words for hope are all about. All right, so waiting is what trips us up, but waiting is really hard. And I don't want to underplay that. Waiting can be excruciatingly hard, depending on what it is that we're waiting through. But we make it harder. We make it harder when we forget that waiting is part of faith. It's part of, of humanity in the state of the world that we're in. Uh, a, a lot of people lose their faith because they have to wait. And when you talk to them, a lot of times it's as if they were surprised by it. Like they thought, well, putting my faith in Christ should have taken care of this. But the reality is, no, it doesn't take care of it. And we have to wait and we are waiting. Je Jesus came into a broken world. Jesus left a broken world. And he promises to restore our world, but that's coming at his second coming. So he told us to wait. He constantly told his disciples, you're going you're to be suffering a lot. You need to wait for my return when I'm going to bring a, a new creation. Hope, the hope that Jesus requires is a waiting, is, is a waiting. It requires waiting. Um, we need to know it. We need to know that it's going to happen. We need to be expecting it. We shouldn't be surprised by it. We have to learn to wait if we're going to cultivate hope uh, in our lives, even, even in the midst, if we're, especially if we're going to have hope in the midst of really, really difficult times where we're going through difficult times in our life. Second, to cultivate hope, we have to wait hopefully. Uh, there is a sense in which we have this hope, and the more we place our life in this hope while we wait the more our hope grows. You might remember, I didn't have time to go into it, in Romans chapter 5, it starts with hope, and it says then we go through suffering, and it grows our hope. Suffering doesn't give us hope. Uh, we have a hope, and we, but if we hold on to that hope, it actually grows our hope. So Hannah Anderson, the, the author I read earlier who had the conversation with her daughter, uh, tells us, um, writes this, she says, don't wait for hope, work for it. Hope is the means by which we align not simply our plans, but also ourselves with God. It is how we move toward the future He is preparing for us in order to join Him there. So here's what it means to wait hopefully. To wait hopefully means you set your hope on a new and different horizon. It's God's horizon. It's a horizon that God has given us, and you live with your heart set on that horizon. That's what it means to wait hopefully. This isn't, again, Christian hope isn't about 
feeling optimistic, trying to work up feelings of optimism. It's something that is active. So to give you, uh, you know, a couple of examples, or three examples. Um, one example is if you think that you have the possibility of getting an A, you hope that you can get an A in a class that's very important to you. The final exam is coming up. If you think you have the possibility of getting an A and you want that A, you're going to study hard for that A. If you think you have no chance of even passing the class through the final exam, maybe because you didn't show up to class for the whole semester, you're not gonna study for the final exam. Okay, so that hope is active then. It, it means you study for that. If you uh, ex expect to get presents from your family for Christmas, and you're looking forward to getting presents from your family for Christmas, you give them a list, possibly, of some of the things that you would be interested in getting. Uh, I know, you know, it's, it's hard to come up with that list. Sometimes you can't get the list from the person. But if, if you don't give a list to someone, like I wouldn't give many of you a list of what would I would like for Christmas. Here, why don't you get me this for Christmas? Because I don't have any hope that you're going to get it, nor do I want you to. Um, so, you know, the hope becomes active. You take action. You wait, hopefully, in that direction. So, if you're Jeremiah, as we're going to see in chapter 32, uh, and you believe God when he says, I'm going to restore Jerusalem, you buy a field, a worthless field in Jerusalem. So let's look at that in chapter 32. So turn back to chapter 32 and verse 6. Here's what it says. He's in prison right now, by the way. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, buy my field at Anathoth, because as near as relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Then just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it. Buy it for yourself. I knew that this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field. <laughs> easy, uh, easy choice uh, to make there. So there's, there's no hope of reversal. He knows that for him that field is going to be worthless. It, it will have no value when he buys it uh, because soon the Babylonians are going to break through the walls and they're going to be taking over Jerusalem. They're going to take people into, all the leaders into exile. But he's waiting hopefully because his heart is aligned with God and it's aligned with God's horizon. God has promised there's a horizon out there where I'm going to restore Jerusalem. Uh, the rest of that chapter describes what God's horizon is. So um, we'll look at a part of that. Look at verse 42 where it gets really specific about this particular action. This is what the Lord says, is I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will give them all the prosperity I have promised them. Once more fields will be bought in this land of which you say, it is a desolate waste without people or animals, for it has been given into the hands of the Babylonians. Fields will be bought for silver, and deeds will be signed, sealed and witnessed in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah, and in the towns of the hill country of the western foothills of the Negev, because I will, rejoice, I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. See, the, the field is tied to the fortune that God is promising them 
the promise that he's making to them. So the land is worth nothing now, but it's going to be worth something in the future. It will be traded for silver. Jeremiah aligns himself with the future, that future. Even though, I don't know, I can't remember if at this point he even has any prospects of being alive in that future. He aligns himself. He wasn't alive in that future, but he aligns himself with that future. What does it mean to work for hope, to wait hopefully? Again, it's not something that just happens, like some people are hopeful, some people are not, some people are optimistic, some people are half empty, some people are half, you know, glasses half full. That, that's not what we're talking about here. It's active. It's an act of hope. It's acting on that hope, on what you confidently are anticipating. You align your life, you align your whole life with God, you align your whole life with God's future promises. That's what it means to wait hopefully. So you look at God's promises, what his plans are, and you work towards the end, that end. When Jesus asks us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, we're going to be praying it in the prayers of the people um, in a few moments. When he just asks us to pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, it is a prayer for Jesus' return. But remember, Jesus is with them at that time. So what is he also praying? He's praying that they would act on that. That they would live uh, at doing God's will on earth as it is in heaven. He expects them to work towards that end. So what does that look like? What does it look like to, to do God's will on earth, to live as God is my king, to live out the kingdom of God, the rule of God in our lives? What does that look like? Uh, or another way to put it, what's the field that God wants us to buy? What's the field that God wants us to buy? Now, the, the Scripture talks about this in a bunch of different ways. Um, the first one is one that people in our tradition, if you come out of this tradition, if you've been in this tradition for a long time, this larger worldwide tradition of evangelicalism with a little e, not the political version, but the theological version, um, we talk a lot about the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. And so, you know, if you grew up in the church like this one, you heard this a lot of times. The Great Commission is what Jesus told his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples. Go into all the world and make disciples. And the Great Commandment is what Jesus said is the most important commandment, which was two, to love God with everything that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. So we're used to talking about that. Probably in the last 30, 40 years, we've become more used to talking about um, declaring and demonstrating the gospel. So that's another way to describe it. What is it? What's the field? What, what are the fields? Well, they're found when we declare and we demonstrate the gospel. Now, we've talked about that more in the last 30 or 40 years because it, we're always needing reforming. And talking about the Great Commission and the Great Commandment somehow was missing, the, especially the demonstration of the gospel. That is, living in light of this future that's coming, this, this new creation that's coming. And so, in recent years, we talk about that. De declaring the gospel means telling people about God's story, where, where this whole thing is going, and how we can be a part of that through Christ's death and resurrection, by putting our faith in Christ. And so, that's part of what it means to declare the gospel. Demonstrating it means doing acts of compassion and love, uh, not waiting for Christ to return, like, this place is a mess, let's just get people saved, and let's, let's you know, no living out God's rule now, so we declare and we demonstrate the gospel. But I want you to see the words that Jeremiah uses, because it's only in very recent years, uh, again, as we are reforming, as the Scripture speaks into us and corrects us, 
that the words that Jeremiah uses are words that we need to be using as well to describe this, in addition to the other ways. So look at verse 15 again in chapter 33. Okay, he's remember, he's talking about the Messiah that's coming. He's talking specifically about Jesus. The New Testament comes and it says time and time again, this is a fulfillment of what, what the prophets talked about in passages like this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, verse 14, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah in those days. And at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. That's the work of Jesus. That's, that's a summary of what Jesus would do. He will do what is just and right. Now, we did a whole series on this a few months ago on justice, the whole story of justice throughout the story of God. And, um, and really, when Jesus comes, his ministry is, ta- is talked about the gospel of the kingdom. He preached the gospel of the kingdom, and he did the acts of the kingdom. That's that's their, the New Testament's way of describing what is being said uh, right here. So in that series, one of the things that I did was show you how from the very beginning, justice and righteousness, just and right, what justice and righteousness are part of the Bible story uh, from the very beginning and part of what God's people are supposed to be doing from the very beginning. And so I want to go over that rather quickly uh, with you because I think we, we, we need to hear this. We need to... We need to be corrected by, by this. So back in Genesis 18, the call of Abraham, the father of Judaism, our spiritual father as well, uh, one of the passages that summarizes uh, Abraham's call, uh, it says this, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on the earth will be blessed. Okay, so remember the call to Abraham, the great commission is already there. Back in chapter 12 of Genesis, it says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm blessing you for a purpose you're going to bless all the nations of the earth. So that's repeated right there. It says, For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Summary of what he's called him to, by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Now, back in our series on justice, we stopped and we said, okay, what what do those two terms mean in Scripture? I can only give you the summary now. I can't show you the evidence of this. Uh, but it, justice means this. To do justice means making sure people are treated equally and fairly and given an opportunity to flourish because they have dignity as God's image bearers. Now, this isn't the only meaning of justice. About one out of ten times, it means retributive justice. Justice means punishing someone who has acted unjustly, all right, so who's deprived someone, who has not treated one of God's image bearers with dignity by stealing from them or killing them or something like that. But nine out of ten times in the Bible, it has to do with Uh, trying to restore the conditions for flourishing, the conditions that we saw at the beginning of the story in Genesis 1 and 2. It's about working in that way, trying to help that happen in people's lives. And then um, righteousness, we oftentimes think of righteousness as being this personal, you know, I, I don't sin in my heart and I don't sin with my hands and feet. And it does include that, but it's bigger. The term, to do righteousness means living morally and ethically with others. It's not just a personal morality, it's a systemic meaning and needs to be reflected in laws and systems and codes of conduct. Certainly in Israel it needed to be that because it was a theocracy um, led by God. And it's relational. 
in the Bible. So righteousness is about living ethically and morally with others. And then as you work your way through the Bible, what you begin to discover is that basically justice and righteousness are two sides of the same coin. You really can't understand biblical justice without righteousness. You can't understand righteousness without biblical justice. So the two sides of the same coin, like faith and repentance. There are a lot of cases when it's talking about someone coming into converting, for example, let's use the word convert. Somebody converting, what is required is repentance and faith, but it doesn't always use those words because they're two sides of the same coin. Repentance always means turning away from something, and faith means putting your faith in something else. And so we're turning from this life, and we're turning to God, and we're giving Him our life. And it just doesn't have to always explain the whole process. Same thing, justice and righteousness are two sides of the same coin. So it means things like justice and righteousness means doing some of the things that that the church has been known for doing for 2,000 years and still is known for doing. It's doing compassion. It's doing missions. It's about leading others to faith in Jesus. Uh, it's about feeding the poor. It's about fighting unjust laws. Um, it's, it's doing what we talked about last week, the blessed practices. And so it's, it's uh, beginning with prayer, blessing someone by beginning with prayer, listening with care, eating together, so sharing life together. Uh, serving that person. What are their needs? How can I serve them? And then sharing our story, our story of faith, so that they can hear that story and hopefully enter into God's story as well. So um, right here at the very beginning in Genesis, you have justice and righteousness, just in, you know, with the word and between them, okay? The next time justice and righteousness or righteousness and justice occur together, just like that, with the word and between them, the very next time is in 2 Samuel chapter 8. This is before the whole Bathsheba incident. And it summarizes David's reign by saying, David reigned over all of Israel doing what is just and right for his people. Okay, he's carrying forward what Abraham was supposed to do. He's carrying it forward at this point. It's a summary. You know, you could say, what, if, of all the things they could have said about David's reign and about what was happening in Israel, it chooses those words because it's, it's, it's like, a, like a hyperlink. Go back. Go back and look where this first occurred. It was the call on Abraham. It's being carried out by David. The very next time those two occur together that closely, they occur in other places where they're generally close to each other, but just the two hinge together like that by the word and is speaking about Solomon before all of Solomon's mess. And it's in the, it's in the words of the uh, Queen of Sheba who says, Praise be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you a king to maintain justice and righteousness. So this is a representative of the nations coming and seeing Solomon and his reign and saying, as I've observed, you are doing this. Again, hyperlink. Just this is how important this is to earlier and earlier in the story. And the next time it's paired in this way, in, at least in the way that the Scripture has been organized, the very next time it happens is in Jeremiah 22. And this is what it says in Jeremiah 22. This is what the Lord says. Now, this is at a time when the kings are no longer, you can't use that summary. For their work, all right? And so God speaks to Jeremiah, and he says to him, go down to the palace of the king of Judah and proclaim this message there. Hear the word of the Lord to you, king of Judah, you who sit on David's throne, you, your officials, and your people who come through these gates. This is what the Lord says. 
Do what is just and right. Again, of all the things it could say, just a summary, what are you not doing that needs to happen? What has God been calling you to? Justice and righteousness. They're not doing it. And so God is going to lift his protection over them, and the Babylonians are going to conquer them. And now we come to Jeremiah 33, and we see that paired again. Look at verse 15 again. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. Now, given the centrality of justice and righteousness, all the hyperlinks, and that's how the Scripture works. It's, it's hyperlinks everywhere. And it's meant to go back in the story and see how the story is unfolding, what's important to God, what's, in, what's important about the story, how do we enter the story, what do we do, you know, if that's God's story and we are part of God's story, then how do we live into that? Given how central that is, the fact that I spent most of my life not knowing about that is astounding. It's just astounding. It's just not part of our tradition. We just don't. We just haven't talked about it. And the fact that today in our world, to even mention in some churches, thankfully not here, but in some churches, to even mention the word justice is like to get people riled up. It's like to create a fight. Now, in every case where that happens, where people get all riled up because you've talked about justice, just by mentioning the word or by talking about biblical justice, in every single case, it's either out of ignorance, and I was ignorant for years, okay? So it's either out of ignorance, I just, I didn't know that was in the Bible. Um, and that's okay. There's a lot of things. I'm sure, Lord willing, if I'm alive 10 years from now, there's still going to be things I'm going to be learning and corrections and reforming that's going to need to happen in my heart and in my life and in my understanding of God's Word. Uh, but it's either ignorance or it's idolatry. In other words, I know that's there, but I don't like it. Because my allegiance is to something that's higher than God and how he communicates in his word. And you know what? We are idol factories, right? So we should expect that we would make idols. And out of all kinds of things, the Scripture is replete with them. We talk about peace next week. We'll be talking about one of the problems, why we lack personal peace, is because we have created idols. When we don't have peace, personal peace, and, doesn't, and personal peace doesn't mean like, oh, I think everything is going to be okay, and I'm not grieving, or I'm not suffering. It's not what peace is in Scripture. But when I don't experience the peace that God talks about, it's usually because there's some idol that I have, and it's being taken away, or it's shown to be worthless, it's shown to be powerless. And so either I don't like what the Bible has to say about justice because I'm ignorant, or I don't like it because I'm an idol. I can't really think of another option, and both of those are fixable. Um, one requires learning, the other one requires repentance. And that's what God is calling us continually to repentance because we are idol factories. Again, I want you to notice hope isn't about having a positive attitude or being optimistic. It's about anticipating a future when all that is broken now 
will be restored and what is wrong will be made right. What is wrong will be made right. A future where suffering is no more. This is Jeremiah's hope. This is our hope. There is a future coming. So Jesus, the righteous branch that sprouts from David's line, comes and does justice and righteousness. So once you see that in Scripture, you start reading the Gospels, and what you realize is, as you read the Gospels, is Jesus isn't talking about, like, all the time. Like, you need to get saved. <laughs> you need to make sure that you're in heaven when you die. Um, you'll have trouble finding very many, but there are passages, but it's not like the primary thing he talked about. He's talking about living life oriented by God, a life oriented by his kingdom. He's doing and he's calling us to do justice and righteousness. That's what it means to live with hope and to wait hopefully as followers of Jesus. We're waiting for Jesus to make all things right and we work toward that end now. We're waiting for Jesus to make things right. But we're not just waiting. We're waiting hopefully. We're working towards that end now. We're back to what I said earlier. Hope requires waiting, but don't wait for hope. Practice hopeful waiting. Don't wait for hope to simply fall down from heaven. Don't wait for an emotion. Don't wait for a feeling. Do the work Christ called us to do. What does that look like? You know what it looks like. Just watch Jesus. Care about people. Treat people with dignity. They're made in the image of God. Treat people with dignity. Stand in the gap when possible for people who are being mistreated. You see that. The God, the, the, you see Jesus calling us to that. You see the, the, the prophets calling us to that, to stand in the gap for people who are being mistreated. Care for the outcast and the poor and the powerless. That's what got Jesus in so much trouble in his day because the religious leaders of his day had stopped doing that. They had sent a, a personal righteousness uh, an ethic that was so high, normal people couldn't even keep it. And, and, so, and then they criticized them for it instead of loving them and caring for them. Um, declare the gospel. Declare the story of God. Declare the salvation that is available to us as well as part of that story. Don't wait. The other thing is don't do it alone. We can't do this alone. We get to do this together. This is living, living in this way cultivates and deepens hope. As we live into hope, it cultivates hope in our lives. Imagine that you grow deeper in hope this Advent season, and you start the new year with a greater and bigger vision uh, that can remain hopeful even through the difficulties of, and disappointments of COVID variants, cancer, Inflation, school shootings, chaos, the chaos that we see on the news every single day. Hope requires waiting, but don't wait for hope. Practice hopeful waiting.